0: You're listening to Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine.
1: Matters of the Heart The Impact of Psychosocial Risk Factors on Heart Disease. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I am Dr. Lauren Stryker, your host, and with me today is Dr. Kim Leibowitz, an assistant professor in the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery with a conjoint appointment in the Department of Psychiatry at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. She is the director and founder of the Cardiac Behavioral Medicine Program of the Bloom Cardiovascular Institute. Pre-existing and co-existing depression in cardiac patients is often underdiagnosed and undertreated, but is now recognized as an important factor in predicting cardiac risk. In addition, prognosis after a major cardiac event is often directly related to emotional factors. Recent guidelines from the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association emphasize evaluation and treatment of symptoms of depression in cardiac patients, welcome, Dr. Liebowitz.
2: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
1: Now, cardiac psychologist, that's that's a new term for me. Can you describe exactly what a cardiac psychologist is and what the rationale behind integrating a psychologist into the care of the cardiac patient would be?
2: Absolutely. Cardiology is one of the areas where research has dictated that the mind and body are really connected. So first of all, if you look at the traditional risk factors for heart disease, you'll see that most of the risk factors for heart disease are modifiable and have to do with lifestyle behaviors such as inactivity, exercise, and diet. So as a health psychologist and a cardiac psychologist specifically, we can help patients initiate and maintain changes in their lifestyle behaviors. We're also now identifying that psychosocial and personality factors like depression, stress, anxiety, hostility, and limited social support also increases the risk of someone developing heart disease and can also predict a poor prognostic event. We also know that cardiac patients also experience emotional distress after a cardiac event or a cardiac diagnosis. They're at higher risk of experiencing depression and anxiety and stress. So as a cardiac psychologist, I can really work with patients at any point throughout the cardiac process and help make sure that their mind and body are are one and that they're improving their quality of life as best as possible. So
1: how common is depression in the cardiac patient?
2: In the general population at one given point in time, about three to four percent of the population will be clinically depressed. If you look at the cardiac population, their risk for depression is much greater. It's about anywhere from 17 to 25% percent. So about two out of every five cardiac patients experience clinical depression, and even more than that will experience increased symptoms of depression.
1: And is there a gender difference?
2: Yes. In the general population, women are twice as likely as men to experience depression, and that gender difference also holds true in the cardiac population. So female cardiac patients are at greater risk of experiencing depression. Research also tells us that younger patients are at greater risk of experiencing depression. So a younger female cardiac patient, age being under under 50 or under 60 is at greatest risk of experiencing depression and reporting a poor quality of life after a cardiac event. So
1: why is it if we accept that depressed patients are more likely to have a significant cardiac effect? Is there a specific cause and effect reason for
2: this? Yeah, that's a great question. We know that depression and heart disease are related, and researchers are now investigating the mechanism to understand that link. We know, first off, that there's a behavioral link in terms of why depressed patients are more likely to develop heart disease and why they're more likely to have a poor outcome. So individuals who are depressed are more likely to smoke, they're more likely to be inactive, they're more likely to be noncompliant from their medication regimen, they're more likely to drop out of cardiac rehab, They're more likely to have a poor diet. So certainly the behaviors that depressed individuals can exhibit puts them at increased risk of a poor prognosis.
1: Well, it sounds like they're all the same risk factors that we see for heart disease, you know, smoking, obesity, poor diet, all of that.
2: Exactly. Depressed patients definitely exhibit that symptom profile. Mm -hmm. We also know that there's a physiological link between depression and heart disease. It appears that depressed patients, while on the exterior they might be more vegetative, they tend to be physiologically hyper-aroused. So they tend to have a higher resting heart rate. They tend to have decreased heart rate variability. They exhibit markers of increased inflammation, and they also kind of exhibit dysfunction of the sympathetic tone. So mm-hmm. they tend to be in sympathetic arousal or have problems with their vagal tone. So it does appear that there's a physiological mechanism linking depression between cardiac disease. You
1: know, as, as physicians, of course, if we identify a risk factor in our patients, such as obesity, poor diet, smoking, and we try and change that behavior Is the depression in itself a barrier to that behavior change?
2: Yes, which is a great question. Individuals who are depressed have a much difficult time making behavior changes. So if a physician or a nurse recommends to a patient that they need to make a behavior change, whether it's start exercising, losing weight, stopping smoking, definitely want to ensure that they're not depressed. Depression would want to be treated first before the patient can successfully maintain a behavior change.
1: And of course, that's the big issue is we're not asking about depression. We're saying you're overweight, you have to change, not realizing that that's just not going to happen unless you also deal with the underlying depression. You know, I want to go on, we're talking about, there's really two groups here. We're talking about Patients, women who have depression who are more likely to subsequently develop heart disease. But then there's also the group of patients who are not known to be depressed, uh, who are not clinically depressed, but become depressed as a consequence of a cardiac event. And these are really two separate groups. I guess my question is, can you predict which patients that were not depressed prior to a cardiac event are more likely to be depressed afterwards?
2: That's a really good question and we don't know the exact answer yet. So individuals are going to be at increased risk of developing depression after a cardiac event or after undergoing cardiac surgery or even just after a diagnosis of coronary artery disease. Individuals who are more likely to become depressed in those circumstances are ones who have an individual or family history of depression, individuals who have lower social support, individuals who are female, and individuals who are diagnosed or experienced that cardiac event at a younger age. Mm -hmm. So that can kind of make us aware of who might be more likely to experience depression but we really can't predict who's going to experience depression after a cardiac event and there's certainly a subgroup of those individuals who do experience symptoms of depression where that depression does remit over time and for those individuals who do not maintain those symptoms of depression they are not at increased risk of morbidity and mortality problems Uh, but we're unable to really identify at this point who's going to experience the depression that's going to persist and who's going to experience symptoms of depression that's going to remit in a short period of time.
1: So then how important is it to recognize and treat this situational depression? Because if things sometimes do get better on their own, how do you know when it's important to intervene and when it's not? How long do you wait to see if things just get better with time and return to normal activities?
2: Well, depression is something that needs to be evaluated and recognized and treated as soon as symptoms develop because we don't know which patients are going to spontaneously remit and which ones are going to, are going to persist. Mm-hmm. So anyone in any medical setting, cardiac patients, really need to be screened for depression. Now, you
1: mentioned, of course, that um, the depression is in and of itself a risk factor for predicting another cardiac event. How much of a factor is that?
2: Yes, research has shown that individuals following a heart attack or following coronary artery bypass surgery, individuals who exhibit symptoms of depression in the hospital, so that's within a week after that specific event, so that actually doesn't meet the standard criteria for clinical depression, which needs to be experienced for two full weeks. So individuals who are experiencing symptoms of depression within several days after a heart attack or after a cardiac surgery can be at least two to four times more likely to have a fatal or non-fatal ischemic event, mm-hmm. a rehospitalization, or a mortality in the six, 12 or even 18 months following that cardiac event.
1: It's really striking. How does that compare to objective findings that we know to be risk factors for repeat events such as ejection, fraction, hypertension, things such as that?
2: There are some studies that have shown that the presence of depression is as strong or even stronger than standard traditional risk factors such as hypertension, previous history of a heart attack and left ventricular ejection fraction. So it's definitely uh, pretty astounding that depression has really emerged as a risk factor for morbidity and mortality after a cardiac event, independent of the disease severity or location of the heart attack, and it's still underdiagnosed and undertreated.
1: If you're just joining us, you are listening to a discussion on the impact of psychosocial risk factors on heart disease on MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and I'm speaking speaking with Dr. Kim Leibowitz, the director and founder of the Cardiac Behavioral Medicine Program of the Bloom Cardiovascular Institute. Dr. Leibowitz, one of the things that you just mentioned is that you need some time to find if the depression is significant. Yet, the typical patient after a cardiac event is in the hospital really for a very short period of time. So, first of all, how is depression Typically evaluated in cardiac patients, and how does this short hospitalization impact on that?
2: That's a great question. The best way to evaluate depression in a cardiac patient is by a thorough clinical evaluation or interview, It should be done with a mental health professional. But I should mention that in any medical setting, whether it's outpatient setting or in the hospital setting or in a clinic, someone in the medical team needs to screen for the presence of depression, and that's something that can happen very quickly and very briefly by asking a series of one to three questions including do you have a history of clinical depression? Have you noticed any changes in your mood or personality for the worse? Have you been feeling sad or down, or have you lost interest or pleasure in activities that you tend to enjoy? And if an individual answers yes to one of those screening questions, then it's that physician or nurse's job to educate the patient about the importance of getting their depression evaluated, and that medical professional should refer the patient to have a full evaluation and possible treatment for depression. All
1: right, so if this is what should happen, how often does it happen?
2: It's Definitely under-treated, under-diagnosed, and right now, as, as you're well aware, that physicians have a time constraint, and they have a lot of things that they need to cover with their patients. I think a lot of them are also unaware of the impact of depression on a patient treatment course. So what's wonderful is that the American Heart Association just earlier this week came out with guidelines and recommendations for the screening and treatment of depression, recognizing that it is important and it does need to be done routinely on all cardiac patients.
1: And one would hope that that position statement will make an impact. But why do you think traditionally the role of depression as a risk factor has not gotten adequate attention by cardiologists?
2: I think there are a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, a lot of of cardiologists might look at symptoms of depression and assume that that's typical adjustment after a heart attack or after cardiac surgery, but what we know now from research is even experiencing symptoms of depression in those few days or in that week or two following that cardiac event, it still can be a risk factor for poor prognosis. I think also there might just not be enough education and information out there. Cardiologists might be hesitant to recognize depression as a risk factor because there is yet no good information showing that lowering depression can result in reduced cardiac endpoint.
1: I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Leibowitz, who has given us new insight into the role of pre-existing and co-existing depression in cardiac patients as an important factor in predicting cardiac risk. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcasts, visit ReachMD.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157.
0: Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. So, Rachel, mm-hmm. now that you're past menopause and we've determined you have osteoporosis, I'd like to start you on prescription-only Avista, raloxifene hydrochloride tablets. Why Avista? Well, because it's the only medicine that reduces the risk of osteoporotic fractures and invasive breast cancer in women like you. It's important to note though that Avista does not treat breast cancer prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer.
2: Am I really at risk for invasive breast cancer?
0: Based on my risk assessment, you may be. Some risk factors for breast cancer include advancing age, family history, and personal history.
2: So even though no one in my family has ever had breast
0: cancer, I'm still at risk
2: for other reasons, including my advancing age?
0: Exactly. And I think the benefits outweigh the potential risks for you. It's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. Individual results may vary, of course, but that's exciting news. Exciting? I'll have to take your word on that, doctor. (laughs) Avista increases the risk of blood clots. should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lily Sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.